We just finished our series on angels, as most of you have been coming for any length of time know, and a study like that, as I've said, would be fairly incomplete if we didn't talk about the fallen angels as well. So we've been for the last number of weeks talking about Satan, the head demon, because obviously if we don't understand him, we're going to have a hard time understanding how his army works. We need to remember that Satan is not a fallen God. He is a fallen angel. Sometimes I think we kind of see him as God's rival. He is not nor never been or ever will be God's rival. Now, he does fight the cause of of God's kingdom. There's no question about that. But he is not God's rival. The outcome was never in doubt. Uh, Jesus and the devil are not arm wrestling and we're waiting to see who wins. None of that stuff. The devil is a fallen angel, high-ranking angel, yes, but fallen angel. So what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is trying to prove that he really does exist as a person rather than just a thought, philosophy, ism, uh, a power. Now, for many of us, we already believed that, but I think it's always important that we're able to actually nail down in Scripture why we believe that. There are many Christians across America today who believe maybe the right things, but they don't know why they believe them other than that's what they've been told, either from grandparents, parents, a pastor, whatever. But if, if they were pressed to try to prove what they know, uh, they probably couldn't do it. And there are some people, I've known them, and even I have morphed in some of my understandings of Scripture, have believed things that once they actually got into Scripture and tried to nail it down, they found out that wasn't actually what the Bible said. They weren't heretics. They just actually believed something that either can't be proven scripturally or once you begin to look at the biblical proofs, it's the other way instead of the way that they believe. So that's why this is so important, even if you say, well, I already knew the devil was a personality. Okay, that's fine. But could you prove that? Do you know where to go to prove those thoughts? So we've been talking about how The devil is real, and just briefly, uh, we said last week that one of the reasons we know that the devil is a real being is because the Bible clearly says that Jesus faced off with the devil. Well, typically, you don't face off with a philosophy, not like the Bible talks. Uh, You're facing off with an entity, with a being. And then we saw that Michael did the same thing. Michael faced off with the devil in one of the oddest passages of Scripture you'll ever read. Why in the world would the devil want the body of Moses? So we just have to speculate there. And the very fact that that Michael would be asked to guard the body of Moses. Of course, God being omniscient, he knows what the devil's going to try before the devil even thinks of it. So he stations Michael at the grave of Moses. Remember, it was God who buried Moses on Mount Nebo. Why in the world would the devil try to get that body? So that's a whole other discussion that's a, a kind of an interesting study, but the point is, Michael is facing down Satan, not some thought, not some ism. And then, I, I believe we, we covered this last week, sometimes the weeks kind of blur together on me, but we saw that Paul said he fought the devil. He said, Satan hindered us. Well, I, I guess a philosophy could be a hindrance, but, but why didn't Paul say that? If, if Satan's not a real being, then he should have said, well, you know, their beliefs hindered us. No, he, he says Satan hindered us. He, he is a being. He is an entity. And then he talks about how we need to be very careful that Satan does not get an advantage over us. Well, again, that's, that's 
That's personal being talk. That's, that's not an ism or a philosophy. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later. And then the Bible clearly says that he is our adversary. So he is a personal foe. He, he is someone that we are fighting. Peter makes that very clear, as I know you know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, Satan, like a roaring lion, roams around seeking whom he may devour. That's why he begins by saying, therefore, we need to be sober. We need to be clear-headed. And he's talking there primarily about spiritually. We need to be vigilant. So notice there, sober would mean you're, you're in touch with the facts. You know what's true. This is one of the reasons why Paul and I typically always use an apologetic approach at everything we talk about. And sometimes I know it may get a little bit tedious, but, but I believe, and I know that Paul does too, that before we can prove our premise, we have to present the evidence. Maybe we should have been attorneys, but we, we believe that the evidence is important, and the Bible is evidential. Christianity is an evidential faith. Uh, if we believe that it's just asking people to leap into the darkness, well, that's incorrect. It's actually a step into the light is what it is. Now, we will never be able to present enough evidence that everybody will believe. But Paul says there's plenty of evidence out there. So being sober-minded means that we're in touch with the facts. That's why it's so important that Christians know not only what they believe, but why they believe it. That's what sober uh, would involve. And then, of course, vigilant would mean now you have those facts in hand and you are ready for action. You're, you're not just warming a seat. You're not just attending church. But you actually know the facts. You can defend those, as Peter said, always be ready to give an answer to those who would ask you. You've got to always be ready with an apologetic. Now, you may not be an apologist in that you go to conferences and speak uh, apologetically and build these massive proofs like Frank Turek and others, but every Christian should be a walking defense attorney with the ability to defend what we believe, to be able to tell people why, why, not just, well, I believe it. Well, that's not enough. A Buddhist can say that. A Jehovah's false witness can say that. So just saying, well, I believe it, well, that's not enough. Why do you believe it? Do you have solid evidence to back up what you believe? So that's why this is so important. And again, he is literally our adversary. And then the second point on the outline is he is not only a definite fact, but he is a destructive force. So now we get into, once we know that, that Satan exists, that he was the anointed cherub, which seems to imply the highest ranking angel of all of the angels into the billions, trillions in number. We do not know. The Bible says that their number cannot be counted by a person. Their number is finite because you can't have one-third of them fall. You can't have one-third of infinity. There's no such thing. But the number is probably so great that no one of us could count them, just like the stars in the universe, uh, grains of sand uh, on planet Earth. Uh, yes, there's a finite number, but it's a large enough number we'd never get there. Well, that's the way it is with angels. So when, when, when he falls, he now has not only in our minds an understanding, he was the anointed cherub, he falls, he is able to gender enough support that one-third of the angels in heaven side with him in his rebellion. 
What is he going to do now? Well, he doesn't stop. In fact, I would argue that his hatred is even amplified. Uh, We will see later that during the Great Tribulation, his anger is even amplified again because he knows now he has but a short time. And so he's even more angry. So what he does is he's cast from heaven to the earth, but he has access to heaven, which kind of shocks some people if they never had that thought. Most of us think that the devil's in hell. No, he won't go to the lake of fire till the final judgment. He's not burning in hell. On top of it, he's not limited to the earth. Because the book of Job clearly tells us that when the angels of God appeared before God's throne, Satan was in their midst. So this idea that sin cannot be in heaven is not true. Lucifer sinned while he was in heaven. A third of the angels sinned while they were in heaven. Now there is coming a time when God is going to banish all evil from the kingdom of God. But not right now. And so Satan has access to God's throne. And we would assume that his access was not, not just limited to the days of Job. Because when you go to the book of Job, you find that there the devil is and he's accusing and slandering Job. And goes back and forth with his conversation. I would assume that he does the same thing today. He will not be limited until the millennial reign comes. And that's the only time that I find that he is restricted. And then he will be ultimately restricted in the lake of fire. So what is he doing now while he's on the earth? Well, the very same thing that he wanted to do while he was in heaven. And that's to thwart the plan of God. And since God has chosen to work through his children, then he uses us as his primary targets. He couldn't defeat God on his throne. He couldn't take the throne. He couldn't rule heaven. So he'll just simply come to this earth and try to thwart the plan of God by fighting us. And so therein lies then the great New Testament teaching on our fight with the powers of darkness and is a teaching that is sorely missing in the church from a biblically balanced view. There's a lot of talk about demons and possession and the devil did this and the devil did that that I don't even think is biblical. But then there's a whole lot about the American Christian church that that we, we don't get either. And there are many in the church that don't realize that Christianity is not a leisure kind of thing. It's not a vacation Uh, It's not a retirement program. We're not placed on a cruise ship. The old ship of Zion is a battleship, and God didn't save us and put us on a playground. He saved us and put us on a battlefield. And most Christians don't get that. We don't live like that. We don't think like that. We come to church primarily to kind of be maybe challenged as long as the challenge doesn't require a lot of uncomfortable, painful change. But for many in America today, they go to church either because that's what they're supposed to do or for entertainment. And, of course, the church has gotten wise to that, and we try to make a show of it. And I think we've hurt the the plan of God. That's not to say that we shouldn't be professional and we shouldn't do our very, very best. When I was a kid growing up in some of those little churches over in western Arkansas, You know, they'd get up and they'd say, well, I didn't prepare a thing, but you know, the Lord's going to bless me. And it turned out that he didn't. Uh, He he, he typically didn't from what I saw. I didn't practice this song, but the Lord's going to give it. Well, he he didn't give it to him that particular day. So, uh, you know, 
preparation, practice, to be as professional as we can be because we're representing the creator of the universe, obviously. But there's a difference in that and entertaining. And about 20, 25, 30 years ago, it's hard to put a date on it, the church kind of got the idea that we need to begin to market the gospel. Well, now, to the degree that we need to put our best foot forward and be as winsome as we can possibly be, I agree. I completely agree. But if we mean we turn the church into a corporation and pastors become CEOs of religious organizations and this is a program and yada, 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 well, then I, I disagree. This is, this is a battle that we're fighting here. It's, it's not a show. So the first thing that, that Scripture says about how he fights us is his schemes. Now, this is the verse we read a while ago. Many of you are familiar with it. It comes from the Greek word from where we get our English word method, uh, methodia, which means he, the way that he works. And this is what Paul uses when he talks about the scheme. So back to 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That word devices is the word methodia, which means schemes. Now, notice Paul here is making it very, very clear that apparently some Christians are ignorant of his schemes. And those Christians who are ignorant of his schemes are taken advantage of. Believers. Paul's writing to Christians here. Now, in an indirect sense, of course, the devil is taking advantage of anyone who is lost. And was, as we'll see in a moment, he actually helps to blind their eyes to the gospel anyway. But Paul is primarily talking here to Christians and he says, look, we have to be very careful or Satan will get an advantage over us. We cannot be ignorant of his schemes. And if you look at your life and you really do a study of, of, of how your flesh and the powers of darkness have, have worked sometimes in, in concert together, because remember, we still have the flesh that we're battling with. We're saved at our spirit level with justification. We're being saved at our soulish level through sanctification and then we will be completely glorified, saved at our physical level at glorification, which is the final installment of salvation that's received as a package deal at the beginning, but it plays out in our lives progressively. One of these days we'll be free of the flesh, but we're not free of the flesh right now. And the New Testament makes it all too clear, at least to me, that we're having a running battle with the flesh. And the, to the degree that we commit ourselves to Christ and become sanctified soulishly, we're already redeemed spiritually, soulishly we become more sanctified, we have a better chance at reigning in the flesh. But if we're ignorant of the devil's methods, then he's going to get an advantage over us. And I'll bet you if you think through your life, there are certain vulnerabilities that you have. We all do. John in 1 John 3 talks about the different ways in which the devil works against us. And he uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All our sins fall into one of those three categories. And I believe that every one of us in this room, every one of us, has a very unique vulnerability in at least one of those areas. Now, we're probably all battling at all three levels, but you and I have a great weakness in at least one of them. Maybe yours is lust of the flesh. You're driven by appetites, whether they be literal appetites 
or sexual appetites or whatever. So maybe that's your vulnerability. Maybe another one's vulnerability is lust of the eyes, which has to do with materialism and greed. Maybe some jealousy and envy. And that's your weakness. You're driven to acquire, acquire, acquire. Get, get uh, that position. Get this position. Which then begins to border into the third category, which is the pride of life. The idea that I can do it myself. Or the idea that I, my job is to make myself somebody. And so we'll just walk over people, climb over people, be a little bit dishonest at times, a little unethical, so that we can advance because we're driven by pride. And ultimately that shows in God working in us and we constantly saying no, even as a Christian. Now look at your life and one of those vulnerabilities that you keep having to come back to God with, right? I mean, there's some things that you just keep having to come back to God with and say, Lord, I did it again and I need some help here. Well, take a look at how the powers of darkness in your flesh work as you head down the, the, the ramp or the slide into that particular sin. Those are methods. Those are devices. And so he uses these against us. And if we are not well versed, not only in how the devil works generally, but how he works in us specifically, we're going to keep falling for the same thing. Right? We all know that. So, schemes. And then we get to why he's called Satan. Because his name was originally Lucifer. And by the way, Lucifer means light bearer. That's why he's called son of the morning in the Old Testament. He's light bearer. Well, just because he falls or he's cast out of heaven does not mean that he lost his innate characteristics. So if he can use light to help in his plan of darkness, as we'll see in just a moment, he will. So his name is changed forever. He's not known as Lucifer after Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. He's known as Satan, and that literally means adversary, as you well know. The Hebrew name Satan occurs 18 times in the Old Testament, 14 of those, by the way, in the book of Job, because Job is one of those Moments where God pulls back the curtain for just a moment and lets us see into the spiritual realm. Another one of those is Luke 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus and they die? One goes to a place that we call hell, another to a place called paradise. And Jesus in Luke 16, where it's recorded, pulls back the veil and lets us look into what we call the afterlife. It's just different life. I mean, there is no such thing as afterlife. It's life, 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 life. We're immortal. We're eternal. The only question is, where will we spend eternity? So God pulls back the veil. So you have these 14 occurrences in the book of Job. Then the the Hebrew name Satan uh, occurs 36 times in the New Testament. And Satan, of course, as I said, means adversary or one who resists. So that's why he's called Satan. Uh, Satan is a name, but it's more of um, almost a title. Or it it lists his characteristics. So he's known as Satan, the adversary. And then the other name that he's given in Scripture, that of course you're well aware of, is the the name devil, which means slanderer. Slanderer. And as we're going to see in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that he accuses and slanders the brethren. That would mean Christians, men and women, saved individuals, day and night. Well, that's what he was doing with Job. 
And so one of, Job has many purposes. Job, by the way, is the oldest that we know of, the oldest book in the Bible. Job gives us, for just a moment, the, uh, the ability to see how the devil works. He has to go to God for permission, or I would even argue maybe some of his high-ranking emissaries, for all I know. Because I, I'm not sure that Satan would waste his time on all of us. But he has to go to God to get permission to be able to come at us. And then, of course, if we've obeyed Scripture, like Ephesians 6 says, and we've put on the whole armor of God, then we'll be able to resist the fiery darts, missiles of the devil, his schemes. But if we're kind of ignorant and we're, we're playing Christianity casual and just smooth and easy, and I don't want to get too radical about this, and I don't want to be fanatical, then we're being taken advantage of, even when we don't know it. I mean, look at the American church today, generally, without my sounding incredibly judgmental. The American church appears to me to be asleep at the wheel. Now, they're not asleep at the wheel when it comes to saying, well, we're Christians, and we believe that you need Christ, and we'll preach a John 3, 16-ish sermon very regularly, typically to a crowd of people who have either been saved for years or who are so gospel-hardened they probably never will be, And so they kind of turn church into a Billy Graham crusade continually. Now, that's not true for every church, but I can tell you a lot of my experience in all my years of being in the ministry, which is now over 40 years, it's what the church does. Most churches do not take biblical principle and apply it to people's lives presently. They don't take current events and say, well, how do I see this? How do I understand this? How do I respond to this from a biblical perspective, which is called a biblical worldview? Barna found that only 9% of those who claim to be born-again Christians actually have a biblical worldview. Now, what that tells me, that there's only 9% of Christians who can actually take what's going on in their contemporary situation and apply a biblical lens to it. The rest of believers don't know how to do that. And so they just stumble around. And that's why we have people that believe silly stuff. And so you have people like, for instance, that will read Romans 13 verses 1 through 5 and say, you know what, Paul said you've got to knuckle under no matter what. That's not what he said. That's why I wrote the book that I released recently. Spoke just last weekend at a conference in Tulsa. And that was my subject for the the Saturday morning session when I spoke, is to help believers to properly understand what was Paul actually saying. And when you actually do some hermeneutics and and you, you take a serious look at that passage of Scripture, he was not saying what so many pastors have claimed that he was saying through the decades, including, I believe, though I probably could never debate him and win, Dr. John MacArthur. And now MacArthur is actually resisting the government of California and willing to go to jail in disobedience to them when he's preached all these years that you've got to knuckle under. Well, if he practiced what he preached on that particular subject, he would have shut his church down. Now, I respect him for not doing it, and I applaud John MacArthur for doing what he should have done. But for years, he's preached that that's not what you do. In fact, he, he for years has condemned the founding, what, what most people call the founding fathers, I call the framers, for eventually getting into a war with Great Britain and, and even put it like this, they just wanted to go out and shoot a few, shoot a few Englishmen. Well, you've got to understand the framers were Englishmen. 
They were. That's why Paul Revere said the regulars are coming. Not the British. He was British. Wouldn't have made any sense. It'd be like us if we saw uh, an army convoy. We say the Americans are coming. What? We are Americans. They're American, right? Okay, so we've got to understand. So the devil is a slanderer. The Hebrew name devil is either the Hebrew sayer, because there's two different words used that are translated devil, meaning a goat or satyr, alluding to the, the wood demons is the actual word, demons, what we'd say, that the heathen worshipped. Or it is the Hebrew word shed, now not like a woodshed, but the word shed or shed or sheed, meaning Lord or idol, and was regarded by the Jews as a demon. So this is why he's called devil. So Satan, adversary, resister of God and his kingdom, devil, slanderer. Now it begins to make sense that the left can't seem to tell the truth. The left can't even seem to be able to recognize the truth. The book of John chapter 8 says, I believe it's verse 44, that Satan is the father of lies. And those who follow him lie just like he does. I didn't make that up. Literally comes right out of scripture. So he is the slanderer. The Greek name for devil is the word diabolos. It means slanderer, the archenemy of believers, the accuser of the brethren. So in the Gospels, the Greek word diamon, which you'll, you'll come across if you look at any Greek lexicons, is actually the plural of demon. So diamon, which means plural or more than one. And so you'll often see the phrase casting out devils, devils plural. Well, there's only one devil, lots of demons. And so when you see devils, it's not the literal word diabolos. It's diamond, which means demons, plural. Okay? Does that, make, does that make sense to you? So these are his names, and the names are important because they tell us about him. They tell us about his schemes. He's an accuser. So if you begin to move forward in your Christian walk and you're growing, he'll come to you and tell you what a louse you are. He'll do everything that he can do to slander you to you. To others, and to the angels, and to God Himself. So He will slander you. Then the other thing that He will do is He will just simply come against you. He'll just fight you. Now, maybe not Him personally, but His kingdom, which of course is made up of millions and millions, maybe billions of demons, one-third of the holy angels. So then there are some other points on your outline that we want to fill in. And I believe this one only has one blank. I'm not sure. I can't remember how that outline looks. But there's actually a few bullet points that you'll want to add to that. Um, I'm not sure that there's actually a fill in the blank because there's like, I I think I have three of them here. Uh, The devil is, the Bible calls him the God of this world, lowercase g. He is not capital G. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and a thousand hills that the cattle are on. So it's all God's. So this idea that you'll often hear in the Word of Faith movement that Adam stole the planet from God, gave it to the devil because he was deceived by the devil, and now God cannot enter into the earth realm. Remember when I played you some of those clips clips from some of these very well-known Word of Faith teachers and that God can't do anything on earth unless he gets permission. That is nonsense. 
That is ludicrous. But still, Satan is the god of this world, but lowercase g. So what does that mean? Well, when it says world, it doesn't mean planet or creation. It means the world system made up of men and women. The powers that be on the earth. Uh, Almost political, but way beyond political. So when the Bible says that he's the god of this world, it literally means that he pulls the strings as much as he can on the world system. But remember, the Bible also says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And a righteous man's steps are ordered by the Lord. So don't forget that even though Satan is the god of this world system, there's also the kingdom of God at work on this earth too. So right now we have two kingdoms in collision. And that's why I think a lot of people kind of get the idea that Satan is a fallen god and that he's the, the arch titan against God and that Jesus and the devil are in an arm wrestling contest. No, no, no. But we do have two kingdoms at work on planet earth right now in this continuum that we call time that God created. So he is the God of this world, but the kingdom of God is also on this earth. And so don't forget that. So the kingdom of this world fights the kingdom of God, which is made up, of course, of believers as well. So you have unbelievers and believers, and you have these kingdoms in collision, and that will continue. What is happening now is not new. It has happened before. And what I say by happening now, I mean in the United States. This is not new. If you and I could transport ourselves back to the 1760s, the 1770s in the, in the colonies, I promise you they were just as alarmed and just as at unrest and concerned about their future and the future for their children as we are ours, maybe more so for them. Go back another hundred or so years and look at those separatists who come across the Atlantic Ocean after having defied the English law and were captured, the men, for a while and finally made it to Holland and then that wasn't working out spiritually the way they knew it should and after 12 years came on across the Atlantic and were were hoodwinked and cheated and ended up with a bad ship, the Speedwell, that wasn't speedy or well and was leaking and so they had to turn around and come back. And then they get on the Mayflower. See, we look back at all this and we glorify it. Oh, the Mayflower, the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a cargo ship. It primarily had carried wine over its lifetime. Was not made for a lot of people other than the crew. This was not a cruise ship. It was terrible. And by the way, do you know why there is no exact facsimile of the Mayflower. Now there's Mayflower too in the Plymouth Harbor. When I lead tours there, we go on it because it's the closest thing we can get to the Mayflower. Because the Mayflower, not long after it got back to Great Britain, was salvaged. It was a worn out ship. They pulled it apart. But see, we kind of venerate it in our minds and we think, oh, the Mayflower. And we think of the pilgrims. These people were struggling just to survive. And don't you know that they had to be asking the same questions we asked? They'd been cheated by their financiers. They'd been cheated by the boat companies. They'd been cheated by the English government. They go across the Atlantic late in the worst time of the year. And many of them are deathly ill, so much so that I think that contributes to the fact that in that first winter, half of them die. William Bradford's wife is so disillusioned when they land in Cape Cod. Now today, Provincetown is there. All they could see was sand. I believe she committed suicide. I think she ran and jumped off the ship. That's William Bradford's wife. He becomes the governor of the Plymouth Plantation and is a great Christian. But see, we, 
we see it from the, the sterilized, uh, cleaned up, polished side. These people have always been struggling against the God of this world. And that uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 verse is where Paul says that the God of this world has blinded those who are in darkness so that they won't come to the light. So remember, those who are wicked on this earth are not just wicked people, they're blinded people. Nancy Pelosi is so blind. You know, if you can get past all of her wickedness and the the deep level of resentment that we have toward her, she is a deceived woman who is now in the very last years of her life. Even if she lives to be in her 90s, she's still in the last years of her life, and she's going to die, and she's going to be lost for eternity. No matter what position she held, no matter how much power she wielded, she's a blinded woman. It's a very sad thing. Just imagine what good she could do if she could see. But she cannot see. So he's the God of this world. He's also called the king of demons. In Luke chapter 11 verse 15. And then as you're very familiar in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. He's part of those wicked powers in heavenly places. And out there in the air. So the devil and his demons are all over this planet, because this is where they were cast, and they haven't stopped on their quest to thwart God's plan. Now, I think the devil knows now that he'll never be on the throne. What he's doing now is just out of rage, out of anger, because he is truly a lost entity, and the demons nor the devil can be saved, and there's a a good, good proof of that that maybe later on we we could talk about when we talk about Satan being thrown into the bottomless pit. Satan's goal, of course, is to destroy God's kingdom and to deceive mankind. That's what he's all about. And that's, of course, in keeping with his name. In John 10, verse 10, the first part of that verse, the thief, of course, he's referring there primarily to the devil. The The thief comes to do what? Steal, to kill, and to destroy. Those are the three goals that the devil has. Each one could be expanded way beyond where we need to go in this study. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. He wants to kill, I want to give life. And that they may have it more abundantly. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, speaking of Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Just think about having no hope beyond this immediate life. I've done funerals of people. I've told you before, I don't want to go all into it, that I think we're lost. And boy, that was a bleak service. Yet I've done other services where we knew that person was a Christian. And it was practically a celebration. The hopelessness of not knowing that you have any hope beyond this life. Well, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, but, he, but, but see, Satan had the power of death. He was holding that over mankind. That's why it's so important that Jesus tells us in Revelation 1, I have the keys to hell and death. So I own your body, even when it dies, and your soul and spirit, because the keys to hell and death would be the grave and the eternal destination. And I hold the keys to both. Well, he destroyed the works of the devil. And then 1 John 3, 8, uh, John says it like this. He who sins is of the devil 
For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So while the devil's goal is to destroy God's kingdom and to deceive mankind, Jesus has literally already destroyed the devil's, the devil's kingdom. You say, well, then why in the world is he still wreaking such havoc if he's destroyed, if he's already defeated? Well, I think an illustration here helps. It's a story of a missionary who went to the mission field. Obviously, since it's a mission field, he's not from there. And there are many things about that part of the world that he doesn't know. And one of them is the fact that they have these very large um, uh, snakes, uh, constrictors, whether they're pythons or whatever they are. And he had never experienced that here in America other than people having them as pets. By the way, just a side note, a lot of those people have turned those pets loose in Florida, and they're now taking over the, the Everglades and the swamps. They, they've put bounties out on those things because they're all over. They have no natural predator in Florida. Anyway, back to the missionary. So they come home to their place, and one of those big snakes has gotten into the house. They think, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? So they call a, a local native uh, who kind of specializes in catching these things, and he goes in there, whacks the head off that snake. He comes out, and he says, all clear, dead snake. But they can hear that snake still thrashing around in the house, doing all kinds of damage, just flipping and flopping everywhere. And the missionary says, well, then what am I hearing? He said, oh, the snake's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> and that is exactly the devil. Do you remember in Genesis 3.15, God gives the first messianic promise? That Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Kind of interesting. Paul made a point of it a few weeks ago. It's not the seed of, uh, uh, called seed of Adam there. Because Jesus is not of the seed of Adam. He's the seed of the woman. Virgin conception. No sin nature passed from father to son. That's why, that, that's why the virgin conception, we call it virgin birth. It's actually a virgin conception. Birth is as natural as ours. But that's why that's so important. Jesus is the seed of the woman. The woman does not pass the sin nature onto the children, Dad. It was you. The Bible says by one man sin entered the world, not by one woman. So gals, you are off the hook. Although you did eat us out of house and home. But other than that, with that apple deal, you know, that thing. But anyhow, that Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Well, typically a heel wound is not life-threatening. But then what would the seed of the woman do to the seed of the serpent? Crush his head. Well, that is a fatal blow. That's the first messianic prophecy. And so all through Scripture then you see just a, a buildup of that very first prophecy. And Jesus does it not only at the cross, but also with the empty tomb. So it's kind of like the missionary and the boa constrictor that was in his house. Snake's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. That's what's going on here. So that's why the devil's still fighting, because he doesn't realize he's been decapitated. He's done in. Also, Satan is a defeated foe, which leads us right into this point. Um, kind of interesting in Scripture, the devil's always falling. God's people are always ascending. Just kind of a neat little twist that, that, that is good to think of. Devil and his crowd are always going down. God and his people are always going up, up. Up, up, up. So we begin here. He, he initially falls from heaven. Jesus said in Luke ten eighteen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Well, that's when he was cast out of heaven. Doesn't mean he can't get back to heaven. He's not banned from heaven. He was cast from heaven. But he not only falls from heaven to earth, but he will eventually fall to the pit. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. At the beginning of the millennium, a great angel cast him, that's referring to Satan, into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations, or that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are finished. So he's fallen again. Now he's not only fallen from heaven to earth, now he's fallen from earth to the pit. Now he will get out for a little while, and there are purposes for that that we won't go into today, but then he falls one more time. Scripture says he falls from the pit to the lake of fire. The pit is temporary, lake of fire is eternal. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, look at what the Bible says about uh, Satan. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Kind of an interesting side note there. If you understand scripture the way I do, the beast is a person. The false prophet is a person. They were cast into the lake of fire a thousand years before the devil. And notice it doesn't say where the beast and the false prophet were. What does that imply? They are still there. The rich man in hell said, I am tormented in this flame. But it didn't burn him up like a stick. It's a different kind of flame. So that's an important point. So the man, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, what we often call the Antichrist, are are there after a thousand years of being there. And then the devil ends up there. Kind of always been interesting to me that the devil's not the first one thrown into the lake of fire. Beast and false prophet are. Uh, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil falls and is always falling from heaven to earth, from earth to the pit, from the pit to the lake of fire. God's people start off at the bottom, lost, rejected, wretches, and we're saved and adopted into God's family, and then He begins to work in our lives, and ultimately, we're right into the kingdom, literally, physically. The exact opposite direction. Why in the world would you want to side with the devil and his crowd? They're always going down. I'd rather side with God and his crowd. They're always going up. Well, that wasn't my plan stop, but that's a pretty good spot. So we're going to stop right there. And we got some other really good stuff to finish up this lesson that I, that I think you'll enjoy, but um, we, we don't have time today. So we'll get to that next week. Okay, we'll take a little break, and then we'll have our worship service. So you're dismissed. If there are any donuts still breathing, go get one. <laughs>